Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Major General Gail Pollack. Major General Pollack recently retired from the U.S. military after a distinguished career. She is a nurse and an anesthetist and has had some senior executive roles in the U.S. military, including serving as the Deputy Surgeon General and Chief of Army Nursing. Major General Pollack, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks, I'm delighted to be here. So you've had a distinguished uh, both technical or clinical and scientific career and, and some very significant uh, executive positions in the military. I know that your passion is ocular issues and vision. Perhaps you can share with us how you came to this particular area of interest. Well, I'd be delighted because that's a question a number of people have asked me because with my background, I was a nurse anesthetist, I have a master's in healthcare administration, so I've administrated, I've had leadership positions, but I've never been involved in hard sciences. So it's a very good question. It actually started back in 2004 when I went down to observe testimony on the Senate floor and the three Surgeon Generals, the Army, Navy, and Air Force were all presenting about the battlefield casualties that we were experiencing because of the global war on terror. And after they finished their presentation, Senator Inouye from Hawaii asked them, well, what are you doing about the blinded troopers? And the three Surgeon Generals looked at each other and said, well, that hasn't been a problem. Well, I watched Senator Inouye as they responded to that, and he looked as though he'd been physically struck. And I realized that this was a very, very experienced combat veteran who understood the battlefield was and what did he know that we didn't? That seed just kept irritating me. So over the next few months, I started asking questions and trying to get into the data that we had collected. And the data folks kept telling me that, well, no, we don't have anyone. They're not coming up coded in the system as blind. And I finally said, okay, let's change the question. How many eye injuries have we had if you've been in a combat zone since 9-11. And that's when we learned for the Department of Defense that 10 to 13% of all of the combat injuries from this war are eye injuries. So with that then as a number, we started to tease it down so we could find out how badly and what type of injuries there were. And there were some superficial injuries. There are some very substantial injuries. And now, as I've learned more about it, with the outcomes, as you watch people go through their healing process, we have just over a thousand service members who are now either legally blind or totally blind. So as I was learning about that, I started looking to say, well, what are we doing for them? And I was very displeased that really since World War II, when we came up with canes and guide dogs and a device to read to you, we have not significantly changed our contributions for the quality of life of people who are vision impaired. And that was how I got started. Fascinating uh, introduction to what I believe will be a very interesting dialogue in terms of your current initiative, your, your future uh, objectives. And that, I believe, leads us to the point that you've joined the UPMCI Center and you're the executive director of the nation's first center for ocular regeneration and vision restoration. 
Perhaps you can uh, tell us a little bit about the center that is forming and uh, what the objectives of that center are. Of course. The objectives are multiple because we'd like to do the basic research, the basic science, the clinical research, and the technology assistive device work that would require to really improve the lives of people who have vision impairment or dysfunction for any reason. We'd really like to be able to go along the continuum of vision so that if you imagine the continuum with great vision, uncorrected, no problems being a 10, like we're used to in sporting events, you get a 10 if it's wonderful, you can start to move away from that 10. And when you get down into the five and below, people start to have significant challenges. And that's the group that we really want to focus on, the ones who are having their lives negatively affected because we can't correct the disease or the dysfunction. We can't prevent disease from progressing. So if we can't successfully treat it and hold it in place, I want to make sure that we've developed a full armamentarium of tools and techniques and methods that we can ensure that these folks maintain a high quality of life. So I believe there is a growing and profound need, not only in this country, but around the world, for various strategies and techniques to improve vision. Is that a correct presumption? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the Health and Human Services, who developed a document called Healthy People, it started back in the 90s, and they're up now to the Healthy People 2010. It's a national disease prevention initiative that identifies opportunities to improve the health of all Americans. They identified vision impairment as one of the 10 most frequent causes of disability in America. What is the extent of vision impairment uh, in America at this time? Well, first we have to talk about, well, what does vision impairment mean? Are we talking about only those who are blind? And the answer is no, we're not. We're talking about a huge number of people. There are, the estimates now are that there are more than 3.4 million people in America who are vision impaired. And what that means, you're vision impaired when your best eye cannot be corrected to better than 2040. And so basically, in the United States now, one out of every 28 Americans who is over age 40 is vision impaired. And that number doesn't address the lives that are also affected by that person's impairment because if you're having a bad time because of your vision, the rest of your family, the rest of your friends are trying to work through it with you as well. So it's not just this 3.4 million Americans that are being affected by vision impairment. I once recall hearing that there was an increase in the incidence of depression with uh, those who have visual impairment. Is that correct? Absolutely. The research that's been done shows that people who are suffering from vision impairment suffer from profound depression and about 80% are considered chronically depressed. One of the other concerns that I have is that with that depression comes an increased rate of suicide. So blindness and vision impairment has economic impacts as well, I presume? Oh, absolutely. In 2003, the Prevention of Blindness Association estimated that 
The totally blind and the vision impaired groups cost the government more than $4 billion annually. And unfortunately, the reality is that those costs are escalating. Our population is aging and they're living longer, contributors. But I'm also very worried about what many people call the tsunami of diabetes that's out there. Because when you have diabetes, you are much more likely to develop eye disease. And if we look at the young age now of people that are developing diabetes because of their obesity, we're not looking at vision impairment any longer being a disease of aging. It's going to be a disease across every age continuum. Of course, the other point that we're going to explore in more detail shortly is your, your passion for helping injured military, and they certainly fall into the, the younger age category as well. Absolutely. But they're not the only young folks that are losing sight from trauma. We have sports accidents out on different sporting fields all the time. We have motor vehicle accidents. We have other outdoor activities, whether it's bicycling or even hiking. You can fall down and bang your head and have significant sequela visually. So your center that you're the executive director of, the Center for Ocular Regeneration and Vision Restoration, uh, has uh, some ongoing programs and a strategy to expand those programs to address these problems. Uh, perhaps can you elaborate on that a bit? We're going to specialize in the four most common and important disease areas associated with vision loss. Macular disease, which people know as diabetic retinopathy, macular degeneration, and the optic nerve disorders, which are primarily glaucoma. There's also corneal scarring, and then any type of injury from ocular trauma, which would be from an accident or from a burn, for example. Our intent is to have the research that we do span three levels for each of those areas, so that we're doing laboratory and preclinical, translational research, clinical research, and visual rehabilitation research, so that no matter where you are along the vision spectrum, we're aggressively working to improve your quality of life. So it's my understanding that uh, while your initiative is to uh, address all these areas, this isn't in fact an absolutely new program. There's uh, some of these research studies are currently underway in the uh, Division of Ophthalmology, is that correct? Yes, yes. And there are eye centers across the country who have been working on different niches of eye disease. But what we're really trying to do is bring together the clinical and research and rehabilitation staff in a way that hasn't been done so that it's truly comprehensive. And we'd like to rapidly move research from the bench to the patient. Because currently there's about a 17-year lag in the time from when something is recognized as a new way to improve care, to improve quality of life before it's actually executed for that patient. We want to use cutting-edge technology so that we can provide immediate improvement in the quality of life and activities of daily living for those patients. And one of the other pieces that's very important as we take a patient perspective is establishing an electronic clearinghouse 
for all of the information that's available about rehabilitation tools, technology, clinical research, so that the patients and their families know what's available to them no matter where they live in the world. So you've assembled a multidisciplinary team that has a number of goals relative to this initiative. Can you share those with us, please? Absolutely. They've been stovepipe for so long, and they haven't worked well together simply because they've just worked in their, in their little pipeline. We think that when you bring everyone together to be engaged early in conversation, early in the planning, early in the analysis, you're able to predict challenges that you wouldn't otherwise be able to predict. You're able to modify your plans so that you don't go down what someone else would have been able to tell you is a one-way road. And having that multidisciplinary approach, I think, will really help us to accelerate our translation. And that aligns with the major goals that we have that I think make us a very unique organization because we really want to speed the translation of identification of new information and new care processes, new treatments, to the patient. Historically, it's been taking about 17 years from when something is discovered and validated before it becomes commonplace for the patient, and that's just ridiculous. We want to use cutting-edge technology, technology to immediately improve quality of life and the activities of daily living for people, no matter where they are along that continuum of vision impairment. And we want to establish an electronic clearinghouse so that we have information about the wide variety of rehabilitation tools, techniques, and the various agencies that will help people based on what their individual disease or dysfunction reason really is. So this sounds like a very patient-focused enterprise, is that correct? It is. And I want every day the people that are involved with this for each of us to say, what have I done today that's going to make the lives of someone who is vision impaired better? Noteworthy progress. Let me just step back for a second and ask the, the question, is it possible to cure blindness? In other words, uh, for somebody that has lost total vision, do you believe it's possible to restore vision? Yes, I do. Right now, we do not have a cellular or stem cell solution, but with all of the wonderful work that's going on, I do see that being available over time. And certainly some of the, the tissue re-engineering work that's being done now, we're going to be able to use for, say, burn patients who've lost portions of their eyelid, because that's a very thin piece of tissue. It doesn't require huge amounts of blood vessel and nervous connection. So it's a smaller area for the researchers to work on, but would provide profound improvement in the short term. One of the things that's very, very exciting, though, that I have discovered, and I haven't discovered it, I found the company that's working on it, but I located this company that is working on a concept called sensory substitution. And what that means is that they've learned that your tongue will actually transmit a picture to your brain. It's not a color picture. It doesn't provide texture. But if you think about it from the perspective of someone who's blind, an 80% black and white 
grainy picture is so much more than they have that they're very happy with that improvement in their ability to function. So we're very excited with the work that we're doing because we've already started clinical trials with this device called BrainPort. Yes, I've heard you and some of your colleagues speak of this amazing technology and in fact I've heard some people say I didn't believe it until I saw it. It's a a very radical departure from traditional approaches and apparently offers great potential. Oh, it does. When I first learned about it, I was quite skeptical. And I thought, well, yes, I could close my eyes and I could review it, but I'm going to be comparing it to what I normally see. And therefore, I don't think that's a valid comparison. So I asked two young men who had been blinded by trauma who had both unfortunately have had their eyes removed. There was no way they were seeing with their own eyes and asked them to go to the lab to evaluate it. Both of them called me the afternoon that they went down for the training and said, ma'am, please get this for us, this works. They were able to ambulate without falling off a curb, without banging into a door, without falling down the stairs. One of them was very excited because he was actually starting to read letters on a computer screen. So it has incredible potential. So as I understand this again, this is a transducer that makes contact with the tongue. Transducer is connected to a small video camera. And then that chain of events goes from the camera to the transducer, to the tongue, to the brain. Is that correct? Yes. And the patients that have been using it are describing the stimulation they feel on their tongue like champagne bubbles. And you can actually dial the intensity for how strong you want those champagne bubbles to tingle on your tongue. So it's still a bit cumbersome. And one of the things that we'll be working on in the short term here is miniaturization of the cameras so that we can make it very obtrusive so people won't notice that you have a little camera on a side of a pair of glasses or on a cap. And it goes down to a little computer monitor. Imagine carrying a Blackberry or having a little belly bag on and having a little computer in your belly bag. That then is, as you said, connected to a transducer on the tongue, which is only one inch square. It's a little flat, almost like a wafer. It has 25 by 25 little nodes on it, and those nodes are what then transmits that picture via the nervous system on your tongue into your brain. Major General Pollock, the areas that I believe include uh, cornea studies. Can you uh, perhaps give us some insight into what's happening and what you envision as you move forward in the area of corneal restoration and reconstruction? Sure. One of our researchers, Jim Thunderberg, at the University of Pittsburgh is already very actively engaged in corneal stem cell work, and he's learning that the cells will migrate into certain locations. The work is still early, but it's very, very promising, and I was delighted to see that there are other universities that would like to collaborate with us to help make it possible, because I don't think that our goals here at the center will be to require that everything be done in Pittsburgh. What we really want to do is find the people that are excited about doing this and make it possible for all of us to work together 
so that we can rapidly move things forward. Uh, Major General Pollock, can you share with us uh, some of the, uh, what I believe are very desirable attributes of the research environment uh, here? Sure. I think that many people would be very attracted to, to the organization here. At the University of Pittsburgh, it is not isolated here in the city. We've got the Carnegie Mellon University, uh, which is very, very active in, in technology and robotics and miniaturization. There are a number of other programs in the city, and it's an incredible research environment. We've expanded at an unprecedented rate over the last 10 years, and the university is one of the top 10 in overall NIH funding, and the university is currently ranked sixth. The School of Medicine and the Senior Vice Chancellor of the Health Services are actively spearheading this expansion of research because they recognize how important it is to the quality of life of citizens all around the world. Recently, we've expanded the research environment by developing the Genomics and Proteomics Laboratory and that provides the investigators on campus with access to modern tools in genetics, genomics, and proteomics. It coordinates many of the laboratory services across campus. Major General Pollock, it's uh, been our pleasure to have you on Regenerative Medicine today. Uh, we thank you for sharing both the current activities as well as the vision of you and your colleagues in terms of ocular regeneration. I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, we cannot diagnose medical problems via the internet, but we do welcome your suggestions for topics to address on this podcast. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Uh, we will post on the podcast website a link to some more information about Major General Pollock and her interests. We will also post a link to the Department of Ophthalmology so if someone does have an interest in further exploration of ocular issues with some clinical specialists, they can reach the appropriate specialist for those needs. Uh, I, again, thank you for listening to this podcast and look forward to welcoming you to another exciting interview in two weeks. Best wishes.